0: I'm here today with Olena, another one of the absolutely wonderful people that I met at the Chino conference on the quest for a spiritual home. And uh, Olena has agreed to come on and talk about how she got involved in this little corner and maybe give us some background and then also talk about what she does because she's a software engineer and um, kind of tied in there. You could also maybe talk about what it feels to be like to be a woman in this little corner, because I know it's pretty highly weighted towards the masculine presence. <laughs> so why don't you get started, Olena?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, I guess I can start with how I found um, your channel, Karen. Um, so I was into Peterson a couple of years ago. Um, I kind of got started with him um, based on his like political um things that he used to do the like the bible lecture series didn't like come onto my radar until um after i started kind of listening to pvk and stuff like that um but
0: so for uh, people who aren't in the corner pvk is paul Vanderclay. yes yeah who is a a pastor in sacramento california who also got into this little corner in a very interesting way so okay go ahead
1: yeah um and so I, was, I did a odd search, I think, one day with um, Peterson in the, um, in the query. And um, one of Paul's videos came up. Um, it was kind of uh, strange starting to listen to his videos because he doesn't really have much of an introduction. He just starts going for it. I was a little confused at the beginning. Um, but it was really helpful um or like where I was at and the things that I was thinking at about at the time um he also was kind of going through that um and I do think I found Peugeot maybe even before that um I think somebody else mentioned on your channel that they found him through uh the interview that he did with Peterson um the one about the narrative world and the Mm -hmm. objective world touching um yeah, I think that must have been like a pretty big interview that drew a lot of people to Peugeot because I think I might have found Peugeot before um, through that. And yeah, that video was that interview that Peterson did with him was like pretty big for me and like changing the way that I viewed things. Um, but yeah, and then so those that's kind of how I got it to know both of those Um because I guess you could call them. Um, And then I kind of found your channel through Paul and somebody, I think he probably mentioned you um, sometime.
0: Wow. Well, so I do have one little question. You said that you got interested in Peterson through his political videos. That's usually, if people stumble on Peterson through the political videos, they usually go the other direction. So what attracted you to, what were you thinking about? Now, the first political political video that he posted, as I recall, was the one where he talked about his opposition to um, a bill that would remove his, he felt it would remove his right to freedom of speech. I don't think it would have mattered to him what the subject matter was. The subject matter happened to be a very controversial subject matter, but his bigger issue with it was that it was taking away his right to think and speak the way he felt he needed to, uh, to be a, a competent human being. <laughs> and But I know that created a firestorm in the Internet. And so a lot of people um, came out, attacked him for that, and attempted to smear his reputation and to make him out to be a misogynist and an angry old man, which would generally drive away young women of your generation. So I guess that's why I'm kind of
1: curious. Yeah, Um, I guess my thing was like, I, at the time, this was probably like, at least four years ago, um, I was pretty into politics, um, with like a quite conservative leaning. Um, I really liked the Daily Wire shows um, and stuff like that. Um, so his stance was um, I guess quite validating and he put it in a way that was um, that was helpful and not it was, it was kind of like I had found somebody who was on my side but also like um, had valid points that wasn't just, um, that weren't just, like, because, that weren't very, i am not explain it, they, it was on my side enough, but also not, okay, I'll wrap this up, because this is a bit confusing, um, but, yeah, and then, um, yeah, he was, he was very helpful in, um, validating your point of view but also being able to open you up to like different perspectives i think mm-hmm. um, that was I, my
0: experience i mean listening to him talk then when i when i started listening to other lectures and i realized he's talking about all these very deep matters in almost every subject arena that i had no background in at all it made me really hungry to learn things
1: yeah yeah it's really strange because i um that's kind of his political side is kind of how I got into um, his ideas and his perspectives, but at this point, I think his political um, stances are the thing that turns me off most about him. Uh, mm-hmm. I just I just kind of like don't I'm not super interested in that um, anymore. Um, so so yeah, it's been. Kind of interesting to about how I got from there to here now. Um, I wanted, yeah, go ahead.
0: I was just going to say, I think that's a typical thing that happens with people who get involved in this group of websites. I mean, group of YouTube videos and podcasts is that we tend to move away from the interest in politics, regardless of which side a person would be on. And we get more in, interested in kind of the way the world actually works.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. We're gonna ask
0: a question, I think.
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask you. Um, I know you've talked about this before, but i uh I don't know if I caught a coherent answer to it. Um what was it that drew you to Peterson? Because I'm guessing it wasn't the political stuff. At least the Bible. Oh, um, yeah, Peterson. no.
0: Um the very first time I heard Peterson was before the C 16 thing. I was um just thinking about some issues about life, you know, and how to survive in the, in the world. And I was scrolling YouTube. The the YouTube algorithm was bringing up kind of self-help stuff. And there was a video called 10 rules for life. And so I turned it, I thought 10 rules. Well, I can watch 10 rules. It was like 10 minutes long. Right. And it happened to be this guy named Jordan Peterson. But it wasn't a video he put out. It was something someone else had clipped from various uh, university lectures or, you know, he used to appear on the TV in Canada once in a while. So this was quite an old video, probably 10 or 15 years old of somebody who had clipped a bunch of his little bits of rules that they had kind of picked up out of his speeches um, or his lectures. They weren't the rules that are in 12 rules for life. They were just other things about how to live, you know, how to be a successful parent or how to be a successful husband or wife or, you know, how to get a job. It was that kind of thing. And I started watching it and I thought, wow, this guy is so solid. (laughs) You know, he really seems to, I mean, I had, of course i'm older so over the course of my life i had developed a lot of ways of thinking about how, what reality actually is and how things work and i thought he's explaining it in such a coherent fashion and i got really excited about it and so on mother's day that year i told my family what i want as a mother's day gift is for us all to sit down and watch this video together <laughs> so that's what we did um my older daughter found it very intriguing and so she went home and started listening to his videos while she was cleaning house and found it very good therapy for while you're cleaning and organizing and stuff. But I think that's maybe as far as her interest went, I'm not sure about that. but other than that, I was pretty much the only one that kind of got taken with his stuff. and then that then I heard the C16. then I stumbled on the C16 video and I thought, well, that's very intriguing. But then that summer, somehow, I, I uh, discovered his biblical lectures. And by that time, I had probably watched some of his university lectures. But when I started listening to biblical lectures, that's when I really got hooked, because he was dropping in there all this stuff about physics and philosophy and chemistry and things that I had never studied. And I thought I, you know, I know, I know certain things just from life wisdom and I agree with everything he's saying based on what God had taught me through the years through reading the Bible, but I didn't know any of this stuff that he was using as background material. So that's when I started diving into that stuff. That's -hmm. why I started the channel. So I could dive into that stuff more, talk to people who could help me figure things out.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh Yeah. I guess that's another thing I want to ask you about is how um, his ideas, especially the Bible lecture series, um, at the very beginning, like fit in with the existing Christian faith that you had, Um, because when I, a couple years ago, when I like started listening to his Bible lecture series, um, I changed my mind since then, but at the, at the onset of it, um, it It was very interesting, and um, and there was a draw towards it, obviously. Um, but there was like a a lingering feeling about like, which is odd because I know this is probably what was it was the opposite experience for some people, but there was like this lingering feeling of him like being a little bit reductive of it, not not in the sense of like. It doesn't matter because obviously that's kind of like the opposite of what he was doing but to the point that like um it was it was making things um very not very but um it was grounding them in material in a way that I hadn't been exposed to before Mm -hmm. and so again like like I said like My mind has changed since then i and i think um pretty much in the opposite direction where i think like what the bible lecture series are very helpful but i was just wondering how like you how they fit into your faith and like how your mind changed about the bible or um or anything like that after you heard
0: that's a very perceptive question (laughs) um there were many things going on in my mind at one time while I was watching those lectures. So all of those things were going through my head, um, but I also um, let's see. Yes, there there is a reductive aspect to his teaching in that lecture series, which I think switches a little bit as he goes through, as he gets further in. I think it reduces a little bit. The the biggest thing that I noticed, and I've done a lot of study about. Evolution and creation, and the, the two different, you know, well, the many different theories that gravitate around those two issues. <clears throat> and when I was listening to him use all these examples that supposedly are very um, supportive of the idea that we all evolved from a un- universal common ancestor billions of years ago, uh, the supporting material he was using for that is equally the same exact supporting material that you could use to support the idea of creation, of special creation. I didn't see a difference. In everything that he said, I could see both things equal. I know that sounds really weird, but because inside my own head, there's a picture of um, God's goodness and the way that he is constantly creating, and bringing beauty into the universe. It didn't upset me. It doesn't upset me whether we start with some universal common ancestor and end up where we are or whether we start with a special creation at some point in time and end up where we are. I can hold those ideas and get from them many things that we can learn. So it, it in a way it helped me to understand better people who are absolute dyed-in-the-wool evolutionary thinkers Um, and it also helps me understand better the people who are dyed-in-the-wool creation thinkers Mm -hmm. and I'm I'm somewhere um, there are certain things that are bottom line for me that I would never give on and one of those is that there there is an Adam and Eve and that that there was a special touch of life from God to Adam and Eve, and that there was a fall, and that there is an incarnation and uh and the life of Christ and the, the the uh crucifixion and the resurrection, those things are to me, those are like non-negotiable, but I don't see anything in what he's teaching that takes away from any of that. Maybe I'm just too dumb to understand. <laughs> But so all those things were going through my head while I was listening to him. But there was also this idea that um, while on the one hand, he's very much a modernist. And I, back in those days, I didn't even understand this whole debate between modernism and postmodernism and meta-modernism and, and medieval thinking. I didn't understand any of that. But But he's very much a sort of modernist in that realm. But he also had this picture of this meta narrative arc of history based on these archetypal relationships and that just helped me see so clearly psychological issues that are in the world and especially his picture of the the beneficent patriarch and the malevolent patriarch and the beneficent mother and the malevolent mother I had a, I had a little feeling while I was watching it that I was a bit of a devouring mother when I was raising my girls <laughs> and just in being too protective and uh, maybe not letting them get on their own two feet as quickly as I should have. And that when I heard that, I thought, well, I need to reassess who I am and where I'm coming from because I certainly don't want to be a devouring
1: mother yeah yeah.
0: so so a lot of things have shifted in me i guess in trying to understand myself and trying to understand the world but um i just thought his biblical lectures were super interesting and the other thing that happened was all the time i and i've talked about this before all the time i was listening to him he would come to some big point and he would make this big point and i would think god taught me that in 1987, I wrote it down in my Bible. Or, oh, yeah, God taught me that when I was reading Isaiah 61, and it's in the margins of my Bible. And so I realized that He's coming at it from this completely scientific viewpoint and coming to these conclusions. I was coming at it from a completely, basically uneducated viewpoint of just reading the Bible and trying to hang in there and understand what God was sharing with me. And we're coming to the same conclusions, and that was pretty weird.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's one thing that I've been um, that I've been learning being a part of, um, like listening to Peterson, um, Van der Peschel, and and then just like um, seeing the things that I've learned in the past few years and, and things like that is that. A lot of these um, teachings that are so very common and um, points that, that like you said, um, you make, there's like this big idea. There's so many ways to come out, to come to them. And just the fact that I might be um, completely different from, and my point of view might be completely different from another person, but we can agree on something um, that it, it really infor- reinforces the um my faith in truth and beauty and like the objectivity of those mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. yeah so that's one thing like um I guess this little corner has been helpful in reinforcing and then when I see that around me in the way that like um I might have a point of view completely different than somebody I interact with every day but we can come we can come to a conclusion completely different in completely different ways by but that conclusion is like something that might hold us together is really really helpful and really um yeah it's yeah it gives me hope I guess
0: well so all the time I'm assuming you're fairly young yeah so all the time this was going on you were probably also working on your education and getting into mm-hmm. your career so would you want to talk about that a little bit
1: yeah yeah I can go into that um so I finished school like two years ago so I've only been in the industry for a couple of years so I don't know much I'm learning still a lot um and I have a long way to go which is scary but I guess exciting as well um I think uh, I was getting um, my bachelor's in computer science and software engineering. And I think one reason that I was really drawn to um, uh, Paul and the ideas of um, Peixot and Vanderklay, I mean, for as well, is because um, they kind of gave a space to. Allow for like less structured and logical thought that I've been that I had been very um, enraptured and like wrapped up in throughout my um, four or five years at school. So the so yeah, computer science it's it's the very as you would expect logical field. Um, there's a lot of um structure, a lot of logic. I'm just repeating my point. But, but yeah, I think coming to um to Peugeot's videos, to Vanderclay's videos, um, it was a sort of refuge from like this um thinking in variable variable declarations and like if statements and it allowed me to like relax a little bit more and um, be less um, less stressed and structured in my thinking, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's why I was quite drawn.
0: That's really, you articulated that very well, because it's, uh, it's as though once you can let go of that rational structure, analytic structure, and relax a little bit, many other things rise to the surface that allow you to think about the world in much more creative ways, kind of. Yeah, yeah, I I certainly feel that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask you how, um, what your experience with that has been, because there is, um, I think, like, a bit of a connection with um, the the tension between the masculine and the feminine, and that as well. Um, and so, I've been thinking about how that might connect. And um, you, I guess, you asked the question of like being a woman um, and how that might, um, and that how uh, my perspective on that um, in this little corner. And I was wondering what your thoughts on that would be in like um, structured versus unstructured thinking and like how, oh, yeah. I guess I don't have a very good way to phrase the question, but if you have any thoughts on it.
0: I will answer that question if, if you will go back and try to remember what it was like at the Chino conference where it was probably 80% guys and 20% women, maybe. How was that for you?
1: Yeah. Um,
0: I guess you don't don't have to explain in detail. I mean, you don't have to give me any analysis of it just, what was the feeling like to be surrounded by so many guys? And um, in general, how would you characterize the guys that were there?
1: You asked me this question before, and I've been thinking about it. Um, (laughs) I still don't have a super good answer for it. But I guess, like I said before, I am a little bit used to it being in the tech field. Um, That has also been my experience. Um, But I guess. Um I guess something I could say about that is that like I find I find it easier to be myself in different ways um when I'm around women and when I'm around men I think um so there's I feel like there is a, I'm going to try to go slow to see if I can articulate this idea well. Um, I feel like I, when I'm around women, I feel like I am more um, able to be um, like them or like other girls. And that part of me is like more accepted and there's more space for that. Um, And then, um, and like the way that they think, I can easily like adapt to that, Um, but I also have to kind of hold back sometimes more, you would say, uh, masculine or like structural parts of me. Um, And then also in the same way, in the opposite direction where like when there's when I'm around men, I feel like I'm able to be myself in one way, but I gotta hold back a little bit more with other things. Um, so um, uh, I guess that was kind of a bit um a bit how it was at the conference. Um, I do think it was really helpful that there was that we all had um something that connected us and we had something to talk about and stuff like that so um that was a really useful tool to like break any barriers that there might be at um, but yeah hopefully that made a little bit of sense
0: well I mean it did it because I do think that in you know part of Peterson's teaching I think makes it really easy to think about this if you it made me uncomfortable at the beginning when he was using the. Um, well, now I can't even think of the the name of that circle that's got the wave in the middle of it. The I know you know what I mean. The the yin and yang. Yes, the yin and yang symbol. When he first started using that, that made me feel a little uncomfortable because one of the things I had done earlier in my life was do a really deep dive into the new age theories. And uh, I wanted to understand them. I wanted to understand if they, because many of the new age theories were very um, against the idea of the exclusivity of Christ. And so I wanted to understand them. So I did a deep dive and, and I knew that that yin and yang symbol was used prominently in a lot of new age things. And so I was a little reluctant to listen to him, but But the way that he was using that symbol made so much sense to me in that inside every light thing, there's a dark thing. And inside every dark thing, there's a light thing. And inside every woman, there's a little bit of masculinity. And inside every man, there's a little bit of femininity. And and the balance is different for each person. Mm -hmm. And when I was growing up, my father was a very strong individual. And my mother was wonderful, loving person, but she just couldn't stand up to that strongness of my father. And so as I was growing up and it was kind of a tumultuous household, I think it felt safer to be more like a masculine person because they were the ones that seemed in my world, at least to have the power. So, I mean, I, I dated. I got married. It wasn't like I felt like a man or anything. It was just I think I was more overbalanced to that logical side. The um, I really enjoyed when I was at a party. I would never hang out with the women because the guys were in the other room talking about history and jazz and and um, you know archaeology and all these things I was really interested in politics, economics. And the women were in the other room talking about oh, when you get married, what are you going to wear? And are you going to have babies? And <laughs> and at that point, I just wasn't interested in those things. So I had this really kind of masculine side to me, which I don't think I even woke up to or realized until I was in my early 40s. And then one day I was in a women's um, jazzercise class and we're all doing our stretching afterwards. And I, I just kind of looked around the room for a minute and... There was this space in my head where I thought, you know, women are kind of (laughs) great. There's something about women that's just kind of great. And to be able to be in the presence of women and be able to be a woman in that presence is kind of a great thing. So um, I started trying to develop more of that side of me that could be accepting of The ways of women and um and a little bit more skeptical maybe about the ways of men (laughs) you know kind of balance things out a little bit yeah but my impression at the chino conference was i was just surrounded by such a lot of wonderful young men older men too all of them just really um i think put the lie to so much of the the really strong, angry feminist viewpoint that men are just all about patriarchy, because these guys were all about how can we be reliable partners and helpful to our community? And, you know, it was a completely different picture than you get when you listen to the really angry political types. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Um Uh, I want to pick up on what you said about balancing out the um, masculine and the feminine. Um, I have this uh, feeling sometimes that, like, I have it about this and I guess about a few other things as well. But, like, in that balancing act, it sometimes feels like I'm in a superposition of... um, of the two maybe which uh not the right way to put it but it feels like the superposition and there's like a really tempting desire or tendency to collapse into one or the other um and i was how do you ever feel that do you ever um what are your thoughts on that because you know, it just I seems so much more easier. You have such an
0: intriguing way of putting things. Yes, superposition. I I, I can totally get how that would be a thing. Um, and I don't want to talk down to the audience at all, and I am not a physicist or anything like that, but, but we're, what we're talking about here is like entangled particles, where a, par- a particle can be in one place and another place at the same time, which they call a superposition. <clears throat> something about quantum physics. So my heart could be divided and could be in the masculine space and the feminine space at the same time. And then I'm trying to navigate the world in that situation and trying to figure out where I fit. And, but I think one of the things that I, I tried to do, I became a Christian when I was 32 and I was very blessed at being in a little country church with a very grounded pastor who gave me a terrific start in life. And in that church, they really emphasized being authentic and vulnerable and real and peeling away the layers of the onion and getting down to what's really at the heart. Um, What's really underneath the sin that you're struggling with, you know, be open about pride and, And uh, don't be afraid of failure and all of those things they taught us in that church. So early on, I started trying to peel away the layers of the onion. When you do that, you discover pretty soon you cannot peel away all the layers. There's just too many. So no matter how far down you get, there's always going to be another layer. But when you said earlier about when you're with women, sometimes you feel more free to let out that feminine side of yourself, but not so free to let out the masculine side. And when you're with the men, you feel more free to let out that masculine side, but not the feminine side. I think part of what growing into your womanhood really means is being able to be who you are, no matter what environment you're in, be authentically who you are. So when you're with men, to be able to let that masculine side be there, but also let your feminine side be there because that's the whole of who you are. And when you're with the women to not kind of give into the idea that, well, I can't let them see that side of me because then they'll judge me that whole judgment thing just has to be just, you know, it's not important. I think CS Lewis said something like, you know, those things are just so irrelevant. That stuff is all irrelevant. You just have, when you're focusing on Christ, all of that judgment stuff just goes away. Now it's easy enough for me to say that. It's not that easy for me to do it. And I know there are many areas in my life where I still protect a part of myself so that I'm not subject to judgment from other people. But my goal is to get to the place where the only judgment that I'm concerned about is the judgment of the Lord, because his judgment is a judgment that is there in order to help me to grow, not to, not to damage me or box me in, but to help me be more of who I am. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah. Like you said, that's a, that's a tough position to get to. And I think it'll probably take the rest of my life, of course. Yeah. Well, I'm
0: 75, and I haven't gotten there yet. And I've been working on it for 43 years. so. you know. But there is another aspect of it, and that is that, and it took me a long time to learn this too. My older daughter told me this once, and it took me a while to parse out what she meant. She said, you have to be careful who you let get you. And I think what she means is, not everybody can handle your whole authentic self. And Mm. you have to, when you're, when you're, when you're in a new environment with people, part of that is, and it's not so much that you're trying to hide yourself as it, you might be trying to protect that other person from a burden that they can't handle. If they know Uh, too much about your pain or too much about, your struggles that might be a bridge too far for them, right? So you have to kind of navigate that when you're in relationship with
1: people. Yeah, I think the way that I've been thinking about that recently is like in terms of hospitality and um, just being um, being, uh, somebody who can be hospitable as as an entity, To other people and the way that they are and just being a space for them to I guess be be who you who they are and that being hospitality takes a little bit of work and takes a little bit of cleaning and maybe hiding things in the closets and whatnot (laughs) I I guess that's like yeah I guess that's kind of like one way I've been imagining it in my in my head recently, but it's something that we are called to as Christians. So I think, yeah.
0: Well, that's such a beautiful picture to take hospitality from the realm of the very practical aspects of actually opening your home to other people, which I think is super important. But then to overlay that onto the human person, that's just a beautiful picture. It reminds me of a tract that somebody gave me years ago when I was a new Christian. Back in the day before the internet, we had tracts. Mm-hmm. A tract was a little booklet, that maybe four or five pages, little tiny booklet that had some ideas written in it that people would hand you if they wanted to explain an idea to you. Instead of sending you to a YouTube video, it'd give you a tract. Well, this little tract was about... um, what it means to really give your heart to Christ. And it used the illustration of when a house is being remodeled. Actually might've been an idea that came out of one of C.S. Lewis's books that somebody had reformatted a little bit. Um, But the idea is you open the door to your heart, Christ comes in, but there's just one special room that you're letting him into. (laughs) the other rooms you've shoved stuff into the closet or you've locked off some rooms or you know we're not going to go there because (laughs) but um but what what he really wants to do at first you think oh he wants to remodel my life and so one by one you open these rooms up and let the remodeling begin but in actuality he wants to completely redo everything (laughs) so You got to get all the way down to the foundation. And then when, when everything's all ripped up like that, it's a mess. And so you look at your life and you see, wait, what is this mess? Everything is a mess, but that's part of what happens with the whole rebuilding process is that the worst mess takes place just before the thing starts getting put back together again. So it was kind of a picture of how not to be fearful of the changes that might be taking place when you really start to open your life up.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. That, yeah, I think it was C.S. Lewis, because um, I remember reading that somewhere too. Um, it's also really interesting that you brought that up, because um, actually, I I just recently heard a different version, I guess, of that story. Um, and um, yeah, I've... Uh, I don't think I want to go on this route.
0: Okay, <laughs> oh, sorry, just okay. changed my
1: mind. No, that's that's um, perfectly okay. Yeah, um, but it, yeah, I guess it, it was. I've been thinking about that type of concept um, a lot because of that story recently. So it's it was just kind of um, crazy that you brought that up. Um, so yeah,
0: yeah, I know. Sometimes, especially when ideas are new in our heads, it's a little hard to talk about them. So it's better to let it. Yeah. I think Matthew Peugeot would say it's better to ruminate on it for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So have you read any of Matthew Peugeot's I mean, did you read his book, The Language of I, Creation?
1: I did. I read that book. Um, when I was reading I think it's been at least a year, maybe a year and a half. Um, when I was initially reading it, um, it made less sense than I think it would if I read it again. Um, I think I had just been listening to Peugeot's Channel at that point, um. But yeah, it's it's been um good to like look back now and be like, oh, I've learned so much more, and I feel like I have such a broader, more broader understanding of like what is going on in that. But yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed that
0: book. Yeah, when I first read that book, I think the first couple of chapters really made sense to me, and then after that, it just got more and more and more complicated, and I was like, what? But in the last few months, I've gone back to it again and picked up here and there, and I'm like, "Wow, he's I he's really onto something." Mm-hmm. Especially he has his whole section on time and space, and it's kind of mind blowing because a lot of the new things that are coming out in physics are actually supporting this ancient view that he was describing there of time and space. So, um, makes my mind go a lot of a lot of places. So you were going to tell me what it means to be a software engineer and what it is that you actually do on a day-to-day basis.
1: Yeah. Um, So I, yeah, I've been thinking about that idea, like I mentioned before, of the difference about what a software engineer and software developer or designer might be, because um, I guess a lot of the work I do now is um, supporting I write, I write a lot of code and it's like supporting applications that currently um, exist and like making changes to that and whatnot um, and um, it's not there's not too much um, new design work or creation, creating something out of nothing or like from the bottom up, I guess. Um, So, yeah, currently in my job, I write a lot of code. I support um, applications. Um, Yeah, that's, I guess, that's what it is without getting too technical with it. So I'm guessing
0: that all the applications that we use, they need constant revision to keep up to date with New platforms and and all of that
1: kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, the technology that we use for um, to build up applications is always being updated. It's always being changed. There are different ways to make them better. Things are going out of support um, and stuff like that. So there's even even when you're not building something new, there's always maintenance to be done. That's kind of where mm-hmm. um, our team is right now so yeah there's a lot of that um and it it kind of goes to show like what it what happens when when you have something um you always have to maintain it it can't just be static and it might it itself might not be changing but the world around it is changing and so in a way that's causing change to that object as well um
0: so so yeah yeah so i've thought a lot about this whole aspect of the i'm going to use a term here which is idiosyncratic to j.j gibson who had this idea about perception he called it the ecological theory of perception and i think what he meant by using the word ecological is that it's that part which is outside of you (laughs) um taking me as an inside and then then there's the outside but in in what you're talking about there you're talking about an app that maybe wouldn't need to change except that the outside is changing the environment in which it exists is out changing is changing or even the cells in our body when they're when they're being renewed maybe that renewal has to be different each time a little bit because the environment in which the cell is sitting has changed as well. And so, and that's true of galaxies and, you know, everything that the inside and the outside are always negotiating this relationship because one or the other is changing. But when I was thinking, when you, when you were talking about the software engineering thing of, um, you said you write a lot of code. As I understand it, code is like its own language. Each code is its own language, right? It has its own syntax.
1: So what what language are you working in right now? Um, right now, I work in JavaScript and C Sharp.
0: So C Sharp is C++? plus. Um,
1: it is. It's a little bit different, um, has similarities, but it's kind of like the Microsoft version of C++ um, okay. of Java, I think. Okay. Okay. Yeah.
0: Well, so when you were first learning those languages, did it make you think at all about the structure of language in general and how language functions in in the world? I mean, especially since our idea is that in... From the Christian perspective, language is fundamental because the word created the world. So,
1: yeah, I think it probably did, and I think it what it did is kind of going back to a point I made earlier. It it kind of probably um, fed into and helped um, solidify the way that I saw the world as like a series of a series of like technical objects a series of variables and then a series of like if statements that you just like put together um and then technically it all makes sense you can see it it it's like you can follow the the logic and um if there's an issue with it you go you get to the root of the issue, you fix that issue. um, And then it's like this entity of like, that like you can understand, Um, which is, I think a really, yeah. So I think writing code kind of um, put that perspective of language in the world um, and kind of helped helped me help to validate that perspective that I had. But I think I've recently kind of um gone away from that type of that type of understanding to like a more I don't I don't know how easy in our if if we were to make the equivalence between like um something like a computer language and then the language that we use right now. Um, I think this kind of goes into like the propositional truth um, that Verbeke might talk about and the different types that he has. So say for example, we have a bug in um, our our language that that we use here. I don't know how easy it would be to just be like, oh, let's get to the root of this issue and then we can um, quickly fix it, make, a few changes and then um and then I'll I'll be good and then we can go on to find the next issue and like have this super structured and logical view of how um of how things of how things work so i think um yeah i think programming language kind of like helped enforce the idea that i had in my head but it's been changing recently to like a more I don't I don't know what my thinking is now I don't know how to call it but it's not as it was and I think that there's less parallels I see less parallels now between the way the world works and the way um our language might work whether verbal or um another type and like the way that computers work Mm -hmm. this is like yeah I guess this is kind of like why it's um i'm not super into ai and um haven't done too much research about it but i think like it doesn't have it doesn't draw me too much and like technical things in general don't draw me as much as they used to because i feel like there is not enough um i guess mystery in them and i feel like mystery is Um, very essential and vital to like how the world is put together especially at this point for me maybe it's because I've like been realizing and like understanding how much I don't know (laughs) but I also feel like a lot of other people feel that way too so um, but yeah I think just knowing yeah I'm really uneducated about AI and the way it works and whatnot but like just knowing that it does come down to its statements and loops and at the very very bottom that's what it is um there's like an aura of a mystery around it because um there's a statement of like nobody knows how it works that goes gets thrown a lot um get, that gets thrown around a lot about it but also like i don't know maybe i'm thinking about it reductively i haven't thought about this enough to like actually have a good um, statement to make about it but I guess there's like it's a little bit unenchanted when I know that it goes down to loops and statements mm-hmm. yeah that was a lot. that was a lot
0: well yeah I mean unenchanted is a good word Um I can imagine if I can imagine that the challenge that happens for a person who is a software person, like, like yourself, a software engineer working in code. And then you stumble on this whole world of enchantment and mythology and mystery. And But in a way, it's the same conundrum that has been facing physicists for the last hundred years when they stumbled into quantum physics. Because prior to that, everything in the world was if then, you know if you hit the billiard ball it's going to move and and um the law of non-contradiction some two things can't be in the same place at the same time and you know i mean all of these things that were part of the previous way of thinking and then quantum physics comes along and says wait a minute there's a There's a space in there someplace that we don't quite understand. Now the reductionist would still say, we can come to understand that. It's just a lack of our understanding. But um, my personal feeling is that no matter how far down they reduce it, there's still gonna be a space that they can't understand and that there's a reason for that. Because the only way we can grow is if there are places of unknown. If everything becomes known to us, we just come to a halt. I mean, to me, that would be the biggest halting problem right there. <laughs> if we if we come to a place where we know everything, then why even bother? And yesterday I was talking to a condensed matter physicist, which was very interesting to me because I knew nothing, whatever about condensed matter. But he had pointed me to a video by a cubist, cubism, the Q being quantum. So cubism is quantum Bayesianism, which has to do with predictions based on probabilities. And this cubist guy was saying um, that oh, I lost my thread it had to do with predictability. Oh, he was saying if the world is completely deterministic, so that you and I talking about this today is was already in, in motion from the beginning of the universe based on the, this particle bumping that particle and now the particles in our brains are bumping in a certain way that's causing us to talk about this right now. If that determinism is true, then why even bother? Because anything we do is already determined and anything that's going to come of anything that we do is already determined. So there's no point in acting it out. It's completely meaningless, yeah. and uh, it's no wonder that so many young people who have gone through the educational system and learned that perspective are thinking, "What use am I if everything I do is already predetermined? Then, you know, what's it all
1: about?" Yeah, yeah. I guess that's the danger of knowledge, and like like you said, having. Um, this halting point or end point of knowing and you just know and actually convincing yourself or truly believing that you've got it figured out um yeah that's a dangerous spot to be in for me personally at least I think yeah I think humility is a very important virtue to try to cultivate in our time and And understand your position in the universe and the way that you relate, and holding that in the way that you relate to other people, um, different or not from you, and the way that you relate to God if you believe in Him, or, or just the complexity of matter if you don't. Believe.
0: Mm-hmm. So Are there other ways in which being involved in this little corner has brought about change for you? Uh, Now you talked about the change in thinking. Has it changed the course of your life in any way? What, the way you act in the world, the things that you do?
1: Yeah, I think probably a lot in, hopefully I hope, in the way that I relate to people. Um, I think like that stands up because I had this like, I wouldn't say that the people I interact with daily, um, probably don't have the same. We we are more <laughs> different than than say, um, somebody like my sister and them or whatnot. But I think like, just understanding that, because I think this corner kind of has a good way of, um, it's a good display of people relating to each other and um, in a really good and productive manner. And I think that's something that I try to um, replicate in my own life and with people that I might disagree with and with people that I might not have the same views um, about things, and just like I said, being a more hospitable person to the people around me, um, and um, and also holding like holding that um, humility. I'm not very good at it, but I'm trying. Um, holding humility in relation to. Other people's views and um, and and God, of course. Like for example, um, I sometimes go to see my grandma, and it's every time I go, it like it boggles my mind the different worlds that we inhabit. Um, but it's so It is very humbling. Like, I could just do that discounting of, like, oh, she knows less than me about, like, these technical things or, like, these, like, she has, like, a because she's less educated, there's, like, this less, there's less knowledge that she might have of, like, technical knowledge or, like, yeah, in general, like, but just having a different point of view um you kind of when somebody has a different point of view you kind of have to um force yourself to view them as not just a different point of view that's op- opposite of yours or like that's not aligned with yours but it's like as a whole human being who um who who has those views and has um, that perspective for a specific reason, because they and they've been functioning in a world different than yours that's just as real as yours. and so just, yeah, I'm my hope is that I've grown in empathy and humility and just like in the way that I relate to people while being here. And I still have a long ways to go. <laughs>
0: Well, I think it's so great that you're working on that because I had a conversation the other day with another person that I met in Chino and we were talking about the challenge once you've listened to all these videos and you have all this Vervakey knowledge and Vanderclay knowledge and Peugeot knowledge and all of that kind of stuff, how hard it is when you enter into the regular world to find anybody who's interested in talking about these things with you. And if that becomes the focus of your desire for community is to find somebody else you can talk about this stuff with really shifts your focus away from trying to be a more empathetic, hospitable human being with the people that you do meet because you're constantly looking for someone who's going to know the in talk.
1: right?
0: (laughs) And have you faced that challenge at all?
1: Yeah. Yeah. But I think, the way that I, um, something that's helped me and with that is that like, I think having more knowledge can help you um, be, can help you think through things a little bit more better. But I think um, in relating to people who might not know Peugeot or Van der or Riveke, um they still... Are thinking about and grappling with the same things I am just in a different way and so like and sometimes I know it's hard to like admit that um because you kind of want to be like oh I've thought about things more and I thought and all this whatnot but I think like the more that you talk to people um who don't have your perspective the more you realize that like you're pretty much, you're very much alike in, in the way that you, in the things that you think about and the things that you find important. It's just like maybe the way you go about it is different. And I think that everybody is doing their best. And I think that's like something that I try to repeat to myself, um, that like everybody is doing the best with what they have and the tools and knowledge that they, that they hold. Um, and sometimes, that best might not seem like it's enough for us, but um, but that's kind of like putting a burden upon somebody else. That's not theirs to bear, and I don't mm-hmm. think that's like a fair thing to do. And so, yeah, I think uh, praying to God for humility and mercy is, is something that's been super helpful and important to me recently. So are you in
0: any kind of a small group or Bible study or um that that kind I, of helps helps you in this arena
1: yeah I I think it's mostly like being involved with um my church and like the younger people at my church and those um I think I have a lot of friends who are like kind of the same age as me and so um that's kind of like what I t- mean when I talk about that mm-hmm
0: That's terrific. So you have a social life that arises out of your relationships at church as well as outside. I'm assuming you also have friends that are outside
1: the church. Um less so, but yeah. 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 Um we are getting a little bit um in time. Yeah, okay. I was was hoping to ask you a question before we Uh go. Um so I guess I'll try to set it up. Um let me just stop real quick. I'll try to give a little bit of background. Um and then set it up. So I've recently started the book The Ethics of Beauty. It's quite popular around here. Um have you heard of it? Have you read it? Is that that's not the Timothy Petsitsis book? It is. Oh yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. So I'm just at the very beginning of it. Um, but it um at the beginning he talks about trauma and how beauty can help in healing that and um and the way that um the way that it is important not to um sit in things that might be evil and to not to reinforce suffering unnecessarily. Um, but rather to look to beauty um, to help us get out of dark places. Um, I can't, That's not a very good summary of it, but it's along those ideas. Um, and I was wondering, and then I also listened to your conversation yesterday with Kendall it came out, um, and you talked about um, a time that you were painting a painting that didn't turn out quite um, as you had intended, and then you had to redo it and this and that. Um, I was wondering what you think about the relationship or like the question of, because reading that that book recently, I very oddly found myself in a situation or around a situation um, that is um, very, that parallels very much to what um that book talks about it's of like trauma and like the attempt to heal trauma through um a participation in beauty and just i don't want to go too much into it because it's like there's i feel like i'd have to make um unnecessary judgments to do that but like just seeing or like Viewing that situation it is it is much um, complex and there's there seems to be a lot of tension and suffering in it. So like in an attempt to create something beautiful or in the striving towards beauty, there is seems to be a lot of tension and suffering and uncomfort in the process. And so, and I, I, the story that you talked about with Kendall, um, I, I, there's a little bit of a parallel there of like, you're, you're trying to make a piece of artwork that is beautiful, but the process can be sometimes quite ugly and unbecoming. Um, And so I was wondering how you look at that, how you go through that process and like, what, what might give you hope through it?
0: Well, okay. So there's two things that arise for me. Um, One of them, and I hope I can remember both of them as I talk. One of them is that when, so I, I went through this traumatic situation when my first husband left me and I was alone. And then eventually I remarried. And uh, even in the early years of marriage, they're difficult sometimes. And there were challenges there. And so And then I started into menopause. And for whatever reason, about 50% of women, when they go through menopause, have significant problems because of the drop in hormone levels. So my brain just felt like it had rats in it. And and at the time, I had a baby because I had a daughter when I was 46. So I have this little toddler running around, and I'm going through this menopause thing. (laughs) Just trying to hold on to the world when... Most of my conversation was with this little toddler running around. So I'm mostly using four and five letter words. I had nobody to communicate. I couldn't communicate what was going on inside me. It was too complicated and painful. And that's when I started painting. And there was something about the whole process of painting, of trying to make something beautiful that gave me a way to communicate where I didn't have to use words. Mm -hmm. But that whole process also was as though in some sort of fractal manner, God was also working in me to heal those broken parts. And so this whole thing was kind of going like this. And I had an insight as you were talking about the discomfort in the process, because there surely is discomfort in the process of painting. Every painting comes to a point where you just want to throw the thing away. You get so angry at it. But Jonathan Pageau put out a clip today about forgiveness that was just so awesome because he said when, well, actually he's having a conversation with Christopher Pietro about uh, this idea of what happens when you despair you, you know, you, you know, you need forgiveness, you know, you need grace, but you kind of despair because you can't really receive the forgiveness. You can't receive the grace. And the whole thing causes this kind of cycle of despair. And Jonathan Peugeot said, this is why in the, in the Lord's prayer, it says, Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. There's a fractal there. It's not that it's a transaction that says, I will forgive those who trespass against me so that God will forgive me. It's that the reason that we forgive those who have trespassed against us is so that we can learn that it is possible to forgive somebody. It is possible to give grace to somebody Therefore, it's also possible that God can forgive us and that God can give grace to us. So those two things fit together. So if in the process of making art, whether it's painting or music or cooking or anything else, there's pain in the process. What we learn through that at a fractal stage is that this little process of making a painting will be painful, but you can make it through to the other end and there will be a beautiful result. I think that's the same kind of fractal, that in the same way God is making a piece of art out of our lives and he can work that through and that he can bring it successfully to a conclusion. Mm -hmm. Now it says in that verse, um, and he will faithfully complete it. The work he has begun in you he will faithfully complete it. That That's not an exact translation, but something like that. I think, I mean, that's what came to me when you were talking.
1: That's, re- yeah, that's really good. That's a good perspective for me to take and hold on to. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you.
0: Well, I know your time is limited, so maybe we should wrap up right now, but I would love to have another conversation with you sometime. If you have If you have some thoughts you'd like to share, it would be great.
1: That's good. If I have new thoughts, yeah.
0: <laughs> it's been so great talking with you, Elena. Thank you for sharing it, sharing the time. I know you you got a busy life, so I appreciate it.
1: You too, Karen. It was really nice to see you again.
0: Yeah. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye.